finding with me the book of John, chapter 6, and we'll begin to read this morning, verse number 26. When you found that, I'll invite you to stand this morning, all those that can and are able in honor and in reverence for the reading of God's Word. We're in John chapter 6, beginning to read in verse number 26. The Bible says these words, And Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, you do not seek me because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate man in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then Jesus said to him, then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that your spirit would challenge us and speak to us today. And God, I do pray if there's one among us that's never been saved, that's never turned and received Jesus Christ to be Lord of their life, that God, this would be the day and the moment that they do that today. And God, I pray that you'll remind us from your word this morning what the life of a discipleship, what the life of a disciple, what the basis for discipleship really rests in. And I pray, God, that as we come to a time of invitation to the conclusion of this message today, God, I pray you'll really challenge us as to, to what crowd we're really in. And Father, I pray that if you see areas in our life that are lacking today, God, I pray your spirit will challenge us, convict us, and draw us into your will. And God, will leave here exactly the way that you want us today. Bless this time. Be honored and glorified through it all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And amen. This morning we're speaking to you on the subject of surrendering your life. Surrendering your life. Now, the Bible says in verse number 22 of our text that it's on the following day. It's on the day after that Jesus had walked on the sea. He had sent the disciples over after the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus knew that they were about to try to come by force and to make him king, but they didn't want him to be king of their hearts, but merely king of their city. He wanted, they wanted Rome to be out of the way so that they could continue to live the way that they wanted to. It's really not different than a lot of people here in the South that are members of churches. They don't want to die and go to hell, but they don't want Jesus to be Lord of their life. And Jesus saw their heart, and he sees these people's hearts. And the Bible says, so it's after that, when the people saw, verse 22, who were standing on the other side of the sea, they saw that there was no other boat except that which his disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread and, the Lord, and after the Lord had given thanks. And when the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they got into boats and they came to Capernaum, look at those words in verse 24, seeking him. They, they were looking for Jesus. But the question really bears out, why? Why was it that they were looking for him? Verse 25 says, And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, in verse number 26, answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you do not seek me, because you saw the signs. That is the miracles that point to my deity. You don't, you don't seek me because of the spiritual things of which God is desiring to do in your heart. You only seek me because you had a biscuit and some fish and you were filled. I met a need in your life. And so Jesus really begins to challenge him about what the life of surrender really looks like. Up to this point, uh, there's at least 5,000 men plus women and children who would call themselves disciples. 
were followers of Jesus Christ. They, they would have had T-shirts, bumper stickers. Heaven knows what their social media accounts would have looked like. All the pictures and selfies they would have taken and posted with, you know, great day with Jesus, another, another great day to impress all their friends that really aren't their friends. And, and so they would, have, they would have done all these things to try to identify themselves with Christ. But don't miss this. They were trying to set the terms in what it meant to be a disciple. But Jesus sets the terms in what it means to be a follower of his. And he's going to lay out in this passage what it, what it really looks like. And this really isn't a sermon by Christ, but it's, it's a dialogue between Christ and, and many of the Jews about what lies at the heart of being a real, all-in disciple through surrender to his lordship. Three things I want you to notice this morning. First off this morning, notice a mistaken need. A mistaken need. In verse number 27, Jesus says, Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Jesus already told them, you're not here to learn from me. You're not here really to follow me. You're not here to really, to, to really receive what it is, the reason that Christ sent me. You're here for the food. You're, you're here for the show. And, and, and I just want to pause and say, you know, some of you probably think I'm fixing to, to, to go off on uh, dinner on the grounds. I'm not. But there are a lot of churches that have feeding programs. You know, they, they each week they feed people who are in need. And the heart behind that is good. And friend, I, I learned something reading through the Bible. You know, if someone would have given the prodigal son a bed and a biscuit, he might never have gone home to the Father. There's a lot of churches sometimes who do things to try to, to minimize the effect uh, that someone has on their life when really God's trying to use that to draw them to a place spiritually that they need to be. And it's good to help meet people's needs, but when it makes those people uh, to become parasites upon the church and they just become dependent upon the church rather than dependent upon Christ, then we're being more destructive than helpful. And so that's, they, they, they didn't want to follow Christ. They just wanted the food that he provided. And Jesus begins to challenge them about the, the real need that they had in their life. They're like, Look, it's been a day. Our, our bellies are rumbling right now. And there may be somebody around you, their stomach's rumbling. Like, Man, they've got a need too. We, it's about lunchtime, 12 o'clock. We'll all sit down and have a ham sandwich and, you know, and take a nap later in, in, in the day. And so we, we have these physical needs. But Jesus is trying to push past those to the real spiritual needs. John 3, 7, Jesus said the real need is that you must be born again. You, you need to have spiritual life that can only be found in me. And so the people hear what Jesus says, but they're thinking with their stomachs and not with their hearts. Then they said to him, verse number 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? They're like, you know, well, how do we, how do we earn that? Um, how do we earn what it is that you're talking about in verse number 27? Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life. You know, what, what, do we, what is it that we... What is it that we have to do? Well, it's not what you do in, in and out of yourselves, but it's what you receive. Verse 29, Then Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. And Jesus described what that looked like in John chapter 3. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, says we, we believe with our heart, not with our head. That is, we surrender our life to Christ's lordship. We believe who Jesus is according to his word. He's God's son, our savior, king of kings, lord of lords, and we turn from sin, Luke 13, 3, and we confess him to be lord of our life. We surrender our lives to his lordship. And so he began to, to share those truths with them. In verse number 30, they said, well, therefore they said unto him, well, what sign? Now listen to this. What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? Or what work will you do? Well, he just fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. See, it's, it's, never, it's never enough. They needed one more sign. You know, in good southern vernacular that we hear, they needed to lay the fleece out one more time. It wasn't enough just to take God at his word. 
They had, they had to see something. 1 Corinthians 1. For the Jews require a sign. The Bible says, friend, we walk by faith, not by sight. And so they, it, it didn't matter what Jesus did. Friend, even when he died and laid in the grave for three days and rose from the grave, they still wouldn't believe. There was no sign that he could do that would ever make them believe because it's a willed decision of the heart to turn and receive. And so they came with this need, but it was, they were mistaken. They thought all they need was their physical needs met. They needed a, a peaceful government that Rome would leave them alone. They thought, man, that's, that's really what's going to make life better. Now, I listen to a lot of Christians say the same thing about an election that's going to take place in November. Well, if we can just get the right politicians in place, life will get better. Well, life may ease for a little bit, friend, but ultimately in eternity it's not going to get better. Jesus Christ is the answer to man's greatest need, and it's always spiritual. It's always spiritual. And so they're like, you know, hey, you know, if you just, just, just give, us, give us this sign and we'll believe. And so they begin to say in verse number 31, hey, here, we've got an idea for you. See if you can, see if you can make this one happen. You know, it was, it was almost like it was a, a miracle jukebox. You know, hey, somebody hit B5 and let's play that and see if Jesus can do this. Or they've got a, they've got a deck of cards. You know, and they've got all these miracles. They're like, all right, just pull this one out and see if he can perform this one. Look at verse 31. He says, Our fathers ate man in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven. They're like, hey, literally, Moses made all this manna fall. Can you do that? Well, friend, Moses didn't do anything but be faithful to share God's word. It was God that sent down the manna. And so they were, they were mistaken at the source. Remember before the Jews had, had crossed over the Jordan to inherit the land, for those 40 years that they had wandered, after the, uh, the spies had came back and given them report, the people rebelled, they had to wander for 40 years. Well, even prior to that and during that wandering time, God fed the nation of Israel with manna. Exodus chapter 16 gives some detail about what that manna was. It was a small round substance that came down from heaven at night, it laid on the dew. Um, it had to be taken up each morning fresh, except they had to get twice the amount on the day before the Sabbath. There was a certain time that they had to gather it when the sun began to rise. If they didn't go out and get it willfully when they were supposed to, uh, the heat of the sun would melt it. If they tried to keep double for the next day, worms would get inside of it. So God gave them rules and regulations concerning the manna but he says in the early part of Exodus chapter 16 that he gave it to them also to test them, to see what their faith was going to be, if they would really depend upon him to meet this need. You see, they would take manna, and they could make bread out of it. So it was God's plan. But it was also a type of Christ. It was, it was a shadow. It was a picture of what Jesus Christ was going to be for them. And it met a great need. Look what the Bible says in verse number 50. Of John chapter 6. Jesus is, verse 49, he says, Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, but they ultimately died physically because there's a time appointed to man wants to die and then the judgment. But he says, This bread, this man, this bread from heaven, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. That was God's plan. You know, ultimately, you can go several days. Uh, there is a spiritual discipline of fasting. And you can go several days without eating. Don't you listen to me? If at some point you don't eat, you're going to die. Your body will begin to break down muscle tissue and fibers, and you're going to drop to nothing, and you will die. God gave them the manna to help meet this physical need in their life. They needed to eat to sustain their physical life. They had to make a choice to go out and gather it. But they still ate the manna, verse 49 says, and ultimately they died. It was, it was a, don't miss this, it met a physical need, but it wasn't the greatest need that they had in their life. The greatest need that they had in their life was faith, to have a right relationship with God. That's, that's always what the real spiritual need is in one's life, is to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And they were, they were so, you know, infatuated with Christ. They thought, man, he was, he was really going to be the one who was going to 
move Rome out of the way. We see that evidenced in Luke chapter 19, verse number 37. It's the triumphal entry. Different crowd, but the same voice. Don't miss this. Then as Jesus was now near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Listen, they didn't love Jesus. They were merely infatuated with him. They thought, don't miss this, they thought their real need. Now, Jesus has got a crowd before him right here that says, man, listen, we're hungry. That's the, that's the greatest need in our life. Remember when Esau came back uh, from being out into the, the field? And there Jacob was hanging around the house. That's what he did. And Esau came back and says, man, I'm so hungry. I'm about to die. I hear my kids say that every four hours. They're, they're so hungry, they're about to die. And they don't even know what hunger even is, like most of us in the room. But Esau came back and says, I, what, what good is my birthright if, if, I, if I'm going to die? Just, and Jacob tricked him because he was so emotional about this great need that he had in his life, but he couldn't even see the real spiritual need of what God was wanting to do through his family. And so here it is now, the triumphal entry. Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, and the Jews are all blessed as he comes in the name of the Lord. Hallelujah, it's Jesus. He's gonna, we're going to elect him. Rome's going to be voted out, and life's going to be wonderful. Hail him, hail him. And listen, after that crowd said all those things, Jesus began to say, my kingdom is not of this world. It's not about here. It's about right in here. It's about right in here. He says, that's why I've come. Not to be king of your city, not to be king of your state, not to be king of your country. That's going to come one day later. He said, but I'm first coming to be king of hearts. And hail him, hail him, listen, turned into nail him, nail him. They didn't want him anymore. They had a mistaken need. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, and verse number 30, listen to this. He says, now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today is, and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? He's not saying, friend, that you know you, one shouldn't be concerned with those things. He's saying, but it's not of first importance. He says it's not the most important need. He says, for after all these things, the Gentiles seek. That's lost people. For your heavenly Father knows what, that you need all these things. Now, here it is, listen. He says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. They had a mistaken need. They thought that their physical needs were the most important thing. But Jesus was trying to help them to see that their spiritual need was the most important thing. And if you're here this morning, friend, I want you to listen to me, and you've never truly turned from sin and received Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life, that's the most important need you have. Not to be a member of a church. Not to, not to try to be more Baptist. Not necessarily to join a Sunday school class. We'll, we'll just stick with spiritual things. Not to be baptized. The most important need you have in your life is for your sin to be forgiven. And that only happens, friend, when you choose to repent of all your sin and by faith to receive Jesus Christ to be Lord of your life. But seek His righteousness first. His kingdom reign in your heart. Friend, I'm telling you, there's a place in the heart of every man and woman that only God can fit. And you can try to put everything in there that the lost world seeks after. And sometimes Christians who've lost their mind and forget what commitment's about, they begin to seek after those things. They look for all these fames, all of these accomplishments. It's what happened to the church at Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, that we did six lessons on. But people seek after all of these things to try to satisfy, listen, the craving of their soul. And the only thing that will satisfy the craving of your soul is Jesus Christ. That's, that's, the real, that's the real need. Not only is there a mistaken need, but there was a misunderstood illustration. So they're still here, and literally, they've got plates in hand. They're, they're just standing there, not literally, but figuratively, before Jesus Christ. They've got their plates out. They're like, hey, look, this is all great. Can we just get to the biscuit? 
Where's the biscuit? We, we came, you gave, five, listen, five loaves, two fish, you, you, you did this thing. Do it again. That's, we, don't want, we don't want to hear the Bible lesson. We just want the food. And so he begins to dive deeper into this, this illustration of the manna. Verse number 32, after they, you know, dial, dial, up, dial up a miracle, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He says, that's, that's me. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He says, that's me. It's not the manna. The manna was just an illustration of me. He says, I'm the true bread. I'm the real bread. Well, they're still thinking with their stomachs. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Man, forget about the barley loaves and the fish. We want this kind of bread. This is what we want, and we want it forever. Uh, I've said it before, not really knowing what I was saying, but you eat a meal, and it's like, man, I could eat this every single day for the rest of my life. It's so good. And you'd be sick of it after four days. And it would sit in your refrigerator and you throw it out and the goats won't even eat it. It's so rotten. It's sat in there so long. Because we become so dissatisfied. We become used to something. And so they were like, man, this, this is what we want. We want this kind of bread. It sounds wonderful. But listen, they were thinking with right here, with their gut and not with their heart. They weren't thinking spiritually. They, they were missing the illustration. And so Jesus just cuts to the chase, and he says, I am that bread. Look at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. You say you want to internalize, but you say you want to eat something, I'm the bread. He said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. He wasn't talking about physically, just like John 4, he wasn't talking to the woman of the well about a physical water, but a spiritual water. She thought to herself, man, that's the kind of water I want, so I never have to draw this bucket to the well again. Give me that. And Jesus had the leader of the place to see, friend, listen, your, your greatest need is not physical water, but spiritual water that satisfies the thirst of your soul. And so Jesus is saying to them, I am that bread from heaven. I am. Look at verse 41. Then the Jews complained about him because he said, I am the bread which comes down from heaven. And they said, is this Jesus, the son? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I've come down from heaven? They only saw a man. They didn't see the God-man. That's all they saw before him. They just saw Jesus as a man that could perform miracles. They didn't see that he was the God-man, the promise of God fulfilled to redeem a lost and dying world. He was in their midst, and they didn't see it because they didn't want to see it. They missed that Jesus was God's supply for the hungry soul sent down. They, they missed it. They missed it completely. But their forefathers had done it as well. Remember in John chapter 3 that Jesus was sharing with Nicodemus in John 3? He said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember that that was referencing a time, a sad time in the Jewish history when they were wandering in the desert. And the Bible says in Numbers chapter 21 and in verse number 5 that the people began to speak against Moses because they'd become discouraged because of the way. And they let their discouragement bring them to a place spiritually that they just started lashing out at God. Lashing out at Moses. Lashing out at each other. They didn't like the, 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 the pathway that God had picked for them to walk. Which really brought down to this, friend, that they weren't surrendered to God's lordship. And so they became discouraged and they became and they began to lash out and so verse 5 says the people spoke against God and Moses and said why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness for there is no food well, that's not true God fed them every day it says there is no water that's not true Moses had struck the rock and then all he had to do was speak to it after that 
God was meeting their needs. Now listen to this. And our soul loathes this worthless light bread. Our soul loathes this worthless bread. Friend, listen, that, that manna was a type of Christ. And when they said we are disgusted by this manna, what they were really saying was this, we're disgusted with Jesus Christ. And so God said that's about enough of that. And where you've heard before, you know, someone say, I jerked them up by their collar and I took care of it. Well, God jerked them up, friend, by their belt strap and he sent snakes in their midst. And everywhere somebody complained, they got bit by a snake. And I've said before, how interesting it would be on Sunday morning if God sent snakes to bite all the complainers. Everybody would be, well, I won't even say what would happen in the church, but it'd, it'd sure be interesting to see in the average Southern Baptist church how many would still be standing after that happened. So they, they had this misunderstanding, and, and they, they couldn't see really what the miracle was. It was a representation of Jesus Christ. John three sixteen says, For God so loved the world, listen, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth him should not, what? Perish, but have everlasting life. They said, we've got to eat. Oh, we're about to die. We're about to perish. And they had a mistaken need. Well, God had given them this beautiful illustration to prepare their hearts to see the real need that they had was not to grind man into bread, but to willfully receive the manna, the bread of life that comes down from heaven. It's Jesus Christ. But they missed it. They were more enamored by a shadow than the substance. Can you imagine, you know, if one of your friends says, yeah, I'm going to see uh, my uh, mom and dad um, this weekend. They live about five or six hours away. And when I get back, I'll show you some pictures of my trip. And he's like, oh, man, that's great. I can't, can't wait to see them. And so five or six days go by, and your friend comes to see you. Stay with me. And, uh, you know, they come up and they say, you know, hey, you know, got back, good to see you, you have a good week, you had a great time, and everything was great. And so would you, did you take some family photos? Oh, I did. I took some photos, you know, and it was, it was, it was really nice. And so they begin to turn their phone to you and show you some pictures, and all you see is a long stretch shadow out on the ground. It's, it's a shadow of a body that's waving. And it says, here's, here's a picture of my, my mom. And then they go to the next one. It's another picture of a shadow on the grass. And like, this is a picture of my, my dad. And they said, now, here's a family photo together. This is both of them together. And it's a shadow up against the wall behind the couch of two people. You know, they're just kind of sitting there like this. You just see the shadow, the outline. You're like, this person's lost their mind. You say, and you say to them, all these are, are shadows. You say, oh, no. That's, that's my mom and dad. You say, well, what do your mom and dad actually look like? You say, I don't know. All I ever do is talk to the shadows. You say, Brother Chad, that makes no sense. No more, friend, than it does this. These people had become enamored with shadows. Manna was merely a shadow of the real substance, which was Jesus Christ. And what had cast the shadow for all those years on their life was now standing in their presence. And rather than look upon him and receive him for who they was, they continued to try to have a relationship with the shadows. And that's what happens in churches. People become religious. And they become enamored with a Sunday school class, with a way of doing ministry, a pew, times that we may do ministry, a steeple, a building, a style, a culture, and they never see or receive Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus said in Matthew 7, many in that day will say to me, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things which add up to religious garbage if Christ was not the center of your life? And so they, they had absolutely had a misunderstood illustration. Christ was what the shadow was really all about coming to the world to save them from perishing. Third, I want you to notice now a missed opportunity. A missed opportunity. So Jesus spoke to them and shared these truths, and they said, you know, is this not, verse 42, is this not Joseph, the son of, uh, you know, we know his father and mother, the son of Joseph? And he says, I've come down from heaven. And so therefore Jesus said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. You know, murmuring, is when you say something behind an authority's back 
where you think they can't hear you, but you can just remember, you can just hear them murmur. And you know it's not good, or they'd say it loud enough for everybody to hear, right? But friend, listen, Jesus heard all of that. He heard every bit of it. And verse number 44, he says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last. What a great truth, friend, again, that God is the author of salvation. And he initiates it. He draws people to be saved. He initiates that. And, and I'm so glad in the midst of that truth, there, there are also verses like 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse number 4, where the Bible says it's God who desires all men to be saved. You know, a lot of churches have tried to take different doctrines and verses and passages in Scripture and to try to twist them into an unbiblical doctrine that says, well, God hasn't chosen all people to be saved, and therefore He has chosen some people to die and go to hell. And friend, I'm so glad for the simplicity of Scripture that teaches because Scripture interprets Scripture and Scripture drives theology. It's God who desires all men to be saved. John 3, 16, For God so loved the... That's all people. That's all people. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse number 9. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Romans 3.23 says that all people are lost. So Jesus came to seek and to save everybody. It's God's will that all people be saved. On that first Christmas morning, Luke chapter 2 and verse number 10, the angels were having a song service in heaven. The shepherds were absolutely terrified. They didn't know what was going on. They were trying to interpret the message that was being sung. And the shepherds and the angels said to the shepherds, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings, good news of great joy, which shall be to all people. All people. Well, friend, it's not good news if part of the people can't receive it. He says it was good news to all people. And so I'm so glad that God knows the whosoever wills and the whosoever wants. It's not up for us, friend, to try to figure that out. Ours is simply to invite people, whosoever will may come and receive Jesus Christ. Just to sow seeds. But it's God who initiates salvation. Verse number 44. Look at verse number 47. He says, most assuredly I say to you, who, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's a willed choice. Jesus said, it's a decision that you've got to make to believe on who I am and to receive me. Look back at John chapter 5 and verse number 40. Jesus was having a dialogue. We did these on Sunday night. He said, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have a life. They weren't choosing to turn from their sin and to come to Jesus in brokenness and to receive him to be Lord of their life. It wasn't because he didn't choose them. They wouldn't choose him. They wouldn't receive him to be Lord of their life. Verse number 48, he says, I am the bread of life, which means, friend, he was, he is, he forever will be. That means there's not another bread that gives that kind of spiritual life, only Jesus. He says, I am the bread of life. It's exclusive. Now he begins to share how the basis of what that life is of a discipleship, that life of discipleship is founded on. He says in verse 49, your fathers ate in the man, in that man in the wilderness. He says, and they're dead. They ate the physical bread and they died. I'm going to eat something after lunch today. Every day that I'm alive, friend, until I draw my last breath, if I'm able, I'm going to eat something. But ultimately, friend, that food can't keep me alive. I'm going to die and so are you. It doesn't matter what you eat physically. At some point, you're going to die. But only the spiritual bread Jesus Christ gives you life that never perishes. It's everlasting life. He says, your fathers ate this kind of manna in the winter. They're dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat and not die. They ate it, but ultimately they did die. He says, I'm the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever, and the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. 
everybody. Well, now he's getting down to it. And this is where the crowd really begins to sit back and to think, I'm not sure this is what we, we want. And I've seen it in ministry. I shared a concern a few weeks ago. Boy, you talk about everybody going to heaven, even, even people that are miserable, they'll clap it. Everybody's going to be happy over there. And you, you talk about heaven and how joyful it's going to be. You talk about all the provisions of Jesus and people smile and amen. Uh, you share that we're going to have dinner on the grounds. And everybody, boy, some people stand up and do a holy dance. I mean, they're really excited over that. But don't you listen to me. You start preaching about lordship and it gets tight in the church. It gets tight and it gets quiet. It gets tight and it gets quiet. And it wasn't any different for Jesus. He began to share the basis of what it looks like, and it's internalizing the heavenly manna. It's internalizing the bread of life. It's receiving Christ to be your bread and your substance. You receive his life in you. The Jews therefore quarreled, verse number 52, among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, before they were thinking with their stomachs, now they're thinking with their heads. They're trying to rationalize this out. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, A natural man receives not things of God, neither can he know them. For they're spiritually discerned. They're foolishness to him. And so they're trying to think with their heads, Well, how are we going to eat his flesh? How's he going to do that? They're not thinking with their hearts. Verse 53, Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you can just hear it if you've been around ministry for any amount of time. I mean, all we wanted was a biscuit. I mean, we didn't ask for a Bible study. How did we get into this? These are those deep things. What, what is he talking about? Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, my blood is drink indeed. And you can almost hear from, as they begin to, to quarrel amongst themselves and to murmur as he's talking. I've, I've seen it in churches before. You know, people start having conversations and you just try to preach louder. And it's like they get louder. And so Jesus is just getting louder and continues just to share doctrine and truth. He says, he who eats my flesh, verse 56, and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him, John 15, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. What's Jesus talking about? He's talking about turning from sin and by faith receiving him into your life to be the center and the substance of your life. He's to be Lord of all. That's what he's talking about. It's, it's the basis for lordship. You die to self, you receive Jesus' life. You don't exist anymore. And their response to that is he began to share those things in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 6, he was, Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, says, Man, this is a hard saying. Who can understand this? You want to know why they didn't get it? Because they didn't want to get it. They didn't want to receive it. It was God's will that they did receive it. He wants all people to be saved. He's already, again, he told them in Luke chapter 5 and verse 40, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. It's not because they couldn't, it's because they wouldn't. If you're here this morning, I want you to listen to me, and you've never been saved, and you ultimately die and go to hell, it's not God's fault. It's because you wouldn't turn from your sin, you being Lord of your life, and you received the finished work of Christ on a plate, at a place called Calvary, and His life as He's risen from the grave, and He offers to you life and life more abundantly. You wouldn't receive that as you turned from your life and you received His. So it's not God's fault, it's your fault. He has done everything short of violating your free will. And everyone who has been saved, but has never truly experienced the abundant life. It's not God's fault. It's your fault. It's because for whatever reason, you continue to cling to things of this world rather than losing your life that you might find it in Jesus Christ. He's done everything short of violate free will. 
And they wouldn't receive it. It's not that they couldn't get it, but they wouldn't. Look at verse 64. There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning, verse 64, who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. John doesn't say that they couldn't. He doesn't say, but there are some of you who cannot believe. For Jesus knew who could not. He says they wouldn't. It's a, it's a willed decision. And so Jesus really begins to lay out for him the real need of their life. He was that not to have their, their belly full, but their heart full of him. To turn from sin and receive him. I want you to listen to me the closer we get to November. You're going to hear politicians and leaders begin to share all the things that we need in this country. Need after need after need after need. And there are a lot of needs. But friend, I'm telling you, the one thing many won't talk about, hardly any at all, the one need our country needs is to receive Jesus Christ as Lord of individual lives. And when he's Lord of lives, he'll be Lord of America. Then all these things, Matthew 6, will be added unto you. That's the need. You say, it's that simple? It's that simple. That's what he was trying to share with them. They were like, man, will you just give us the biscuit? He said, it's not about the biscuit. It's about you turning and receiving me to be Lord of your life. And so it was invitation time. They couldn't hear it, but the angels in heaven began to sing just as I am. He had extended an invitation. Look at verse 66. And here was their decision. You know, oftentimes we leave church and you know, I think myself, you know, I've, I've heard people saying, well, I wish somebody had made a decision today. Don't you listen to me. There's never an invitation that decisions aren't made. Somebody may not come down to the front, but decisions are made every time someone's confronted with the Word of God. You know, we, we teach those three parts of Scripture. There's the original message to the original audience. There's a time-transcending truth. There's an application to our life. There's one I don't always talk about because it's just tied to the last one. And it's this. What's my response to the application? You're always going to have a response to God's Word. What is my response? And when these heard, verse number 6, from from that time, many of his disciples, listen, the 5,000 plus that had the T-shirts, the bumper stickers, they were all in, man. Listen, they'd come from a long distance because, listen, they're, they're, they're disciples. They're disciples of Jesus Christ. They're disciples, they were disciples by their definition. But when Christ laid out what the true life of a disciple meant, you're going to die to you and you're going to receive my life. The last decision you're ever going to make is to receive me. And then I'm going to make all the rest of the decisions for your life, Jesus says. When they were confronted with that decision, look what happened. Many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. In my estimation, one of the most terrifying and saddest verses of Scripture in all the Bible. Many of his disciples turned away and went back no more. Listen to me. When Jesus talked about the true biblical foundation of discipleship, listen to me. He lost his crowd. He lost his crowd. Modern day, it would have been this. Well, Jesus, the Smiths aren't here anymore. Where'd they go? Well, Jesus, the Doe's aren't coming here anymore. Where'd they go? Well, what happened to the Joneses? Did, did they get upset? Where, where they, I haven't seen them in weeks. What happened? I'll tell you what happened. Jesus laid out what the life of a disciple looked like, and they didn't want it. They didn't want it. So they started going down to First Baptist ear scratch where somebody would tell them what they wanted to hear rather than what they needed to hear. And Jesus was telling them the way to everlasting life and abundant life here upon this earth. And he lost his crowd. They, they began to go away. So we see a large crowd forsaking Christ in verse 66. But as we close and go to invitation this morning, notice in verses 70 through 71, not only was there a large crowd forsaking Christ, there's one man faking Christ. One man faking Christ. He's with the 12. Listen, he's the chairman of the finance committee. He's carrying the purses in the checkbook. It's Judas. He looked like everybody of the other 12. He talked like the other 12. 
but he had never surrendered his life to Christ's lordship. And friend, I'm telling you, it's entirely possible, Matthew 7, to spend your entire life under the shadow of a steeple of a local church and die and go to hell because you never turn and receive Christ to be Lord of your life. You never surrender your life to his lordship. But notice a small group that begins to follow. Jesus, in verse number 67, he turned to the 12 and he said, Do you want to go away too? So are you going to go with me? Can you not hear the footsteps? Listen, a 5,000 plus walking away. Just the footsteps. Boom, boom, boom. The dust. And Jesus turns when you see nothing but necks, backs of heads, and the bottoms of people's feet. He turns from that and looks at the 12 who are just, their jaws are dropped. They're like, what just happened? Jesus laid it out. That's what happened. And he begins to say, are you going to go away also? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Because you have the words of life. They got it. They really understood. said, there's, there's nowhere else to go. We don't want to go back to fishing anymore. We don't want to go back to the old life. I don't want to go back to having no hope. Being burdened and seeing past sin in my life. My life has been changed since I've been with you, Jesus. And I don't want anything else. And would to God there be someone in this crowd this morning who's been following Jesus that in the depths of their heart would just say, Lord, everybody else may turn back. Thanks be to God, those whom you have saved, they never lose their salvation. But there may be many who began to chase the frivolous things of this world that amount to nothing and will burn up on the altar as wood, hay, and stubble. But Christ, I'll continue on. Where else will I go? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Which of those three crowds are you in today? Are you going to walk away from salvation that Christ offers you again today? Just walk away from it. Well, friend, I want to remind you of a terrible challenging passage of scripture that ought to burden your heart and friend i don't try to to scare you into being saved but this ought to really grab your attention and challenge you in the book of proverbs chapter 29 and in verse number one listen to what the bible says he who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy my friend, you can only tell God no so long before you cross a deadline. Genesis chapter 6 says, My spirit will not always strive with man. And because the Holy Spirit draws you and calls you to salvation today doesn't mean he'll draw you and call you tomorrow. You say, well, I thought the Bible says whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Praise God, it does. But if the Spirit doesn't draw, you won't call. If God is calling you today to be saved, friend, I beg you, turn from your sin and receive Jesus Christ into the center of your life as Lord of it all. And the Bible says, if you'll call upon him, he'll save you. Do it right now in a simple, with a simple prayer of faith, believing in your heart that he died and he rose again and trust him to be Lord of your life and tell him so just like this. God, forgive me a sinner. Oh, I believe Jesus died for me. I believe he rose again. And as I turn from sin, I receive Jesus, his life, into my life. Be Lord of me. Take my life now. Make me to the man or woman you want me to be. Oh, that's my humble prayer now. Did you pray that this morning? Did you mean it? I invite you to make your way forward. Where I'm going to stand here at the front of the sanctuary. Now, I want to share with you. I want to share with you after I pray. What well, is that God wants to do next in your life? Friend, if you begin to follow after the things of the world, little by little, you begin to, to drift away and to, to walk away. Christ really isn't first place in your life anymore. Oh, would to God this morning, friend, that you'd be broken over that. And here in this place this morning, you would experience His reviving touch upon your life. And say, Lord, I, I want to ask you to forgive me forsake me forgive me God for forsaking you and following after all of these other things well, God I pray now as I turn from those things you'll begin to reestablish in me those priorities 
those disciplines that help maintain the life of a disciple. Oh, Jesus, there's nowhere else to go. Be first place in my life. Father, I pray you'll challenge your church this morning. God, I pray you'll challenge the one that's here that's maybe faking. They're a good church member, but they've never been born again. They've got religion, but not a relationship. Oh, God, I pray you'll break their heart and help them to see their need for you today. God, thank you for meeting our need in sending Jesus down, our bread of life. God, would you burden us now for the people in our neighborhood, those that we work with, those that we're around every day, God, who are dying in their sin. And would we share with others the bread that we feasted on, that they may experience everlasting life in Jesus Christ. Be Lord of this invitation. Your will be done in every heart and life. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Let's reverently stand our feet. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed.